Welcome to On Balance. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. I'll be your guide as we explore the stories of today with the personalities impacting tomorrow. Welcome to On Balance. I think this is going to be a very important conversation. I think, look, we spend so much time talking about the private sector. We talk about college and career readiness and higher ed. We talk about K-12. But what we're really talking about is the development of human beings and hopefully their placement, their uh, sense of ownership and agency when they become adults and in the professions that they pursue. And with that, I am very honored to be spending time today with Johnny Taylor. He's the president and CEO of SHRM. Everybody, most people know SHRM, but the Society for Human Resource Management. And if you haven't heard of SHRM, uh, I'm going to welcome you out from under your rock because SHRM is massive. These are my words, not Johnny's. Um, but let's just give you some background on, on SHRM as an organization because SHRM has over 300,000 HR and business executive members in 165 countries, and it impacts the lives of more than 115 million workers and families globally. So hopefully that then supports my, my strong opinion there. Johnny, how are you today? I'm doing really well. How are you, Rod? I am fine, sir. I, look, I would think that a, an individual in your position and an organization like SHRM would be absolutely buzzing with energy because we're living in a time where my goodness, the American worker, the, the, the global worker um, has never had, in essence, more options, more questions that need answered. And on the same, in the same vein, uh, I would say for employers as well. Sort of give me the State of the Union. How busy is SHRM in regards to sort of answering the bell, providing support to challenges that I would imagine are relatively new or they are trending uh, into a direction that maybe we haven't traversed in decades past? So busy is an understatement, right? And it's, <laughs> it's both a blessing and a curse, as you might imagine. Uh, you know, I started in this HR work in the early to mid-90s, okay? So I've been at this for a while. And, and I got to tell you, for a long time, HR people would consistently complain about not having a seat at the proverbial table, right? Everyone thought they could they knew people because they'd hired people, they'd fired people, they'd managed people. So what did HR people know or contribute that I didn't know or was unable to contribute anyway myself, right? I, of course, anyone can do this. Well, fast forward over the last 20 or 30 years, we've seen just an amazing shift. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that we've largely moved from an information era to more of a knowledge worker era. And so now more and more, the conversation is not about accessing financial capital as much as it is about human capital. You know, I've heard CEOs repeatedly say to me and say to our research team that, you know, no longer the world is filled with cash, like we're awash with cash. If you want capital help, they're funding bad business ideas these days. Like, so that's not <laughs> the problem, right? The real problem now is they can't find the right people who have the right skills and who are aligned culturally with the organization to sufficiently grow and meet the demands of the market. So it's a human capital conversation, which has led to a growth and an elevation of the HR profession. And what's really kind of the opportunity for us and frankly, the challenge is that the new demands of HR have exceeded our capability in some instances to deliver and meet those expectations. So it's a great, it's a great story of feast or famine or, you know, we're here now. 
Let's talk about the connective tissue or the bridges that connect the, let's say, the early career professional uh, and the employer. Are we finding that the influx of, of hopefully talent is changing the demands of the workplace? And how are we seeing that play out, whether that's from the sort of the cultural fits or the prerequisite skill sets that we are now sort of assigning or labeling that we need for jobs that are, I guess, more applicable to a gig economy? What's the connection between sort of what higher ed is doing in preparation to meet the needs of the employers on the other side? So it's a really interesting spot. Higher ed, I think, and and I spent seven and a half years in higher ed before coming to SHRM. I was the president of the Thurgood Marshall College Fund. So I actually think I have a worldview and was prepared to do this. Higher ed has increasingly focused on preparing a, a generation of knowledge workers in skills. Like that's the buzzword, right? People either don't have the skills, they need to be reskilled, upskilled. Skilling is the word. And so a lot of what we've seen in higher ed is, is an uber focus on preparing students to be able to do jobs. Can they walk in the door adding value? What we also saw, though, is the other side of that is we focus less on socialization skills, what some people call soft skills, what we call power skills. And they're so necessary now. Ability to work in teams, for example, uh, exercising not just empathy, but what our chief knowledge officer, Dr. Alex Alonso, calls mepathy, right? The idea that everyone wants empathy toward themselves, but what they really mean is mepathy. I want you to be empathetic toward me. I don't have to be empathetic toward anybody else. Like, that doesn't matter. Like, <laughs> we've, not, we've not taught people to play well in the sandbox. And that is what has been missing and increasingly, it's obvious to us in the workplace that the kids are coming in, and I'm using the kids generically, right? New emerging workers, new workers are coming in with the skills to do the job. They can program the hell out of anything. They know how to do the job in ways that we've never seen before, but they come in lacking those skills that will allow them to be competitive and, and successful in the workplace. That's the big struggle for us now. How do we see that play out? So I'll sort of bring Hollywood into this and, and maybe it's a recommendation here, but I'm in the middle of watching the uh, Apple TV uh, docu-series on WeWork called We Crashed. Yes, I saw that. <laughs> and it's, it's, I think it's like for my, it's mind bending. It's, I mean, it just sort of captures your attention and you kind of want, it's definitely, you want to binge watch it. But I do think it's an interesting backdrop to what you're talking about, right? Because they did go way to the extreme, I think, edge on sort of building a culture that would embrace that early career professional and the need to belong. If we're talking about sort of these power skills and what they might deem are power skills, but they may not be applicable in sort of business settings. How do we understand, like, where is the North Star, Johnny? Or how are we looking at this when we think about this balance? Because now we're talking about sort of hopefully post-COVID, uh, fingers crossed. We've got remote environments. We've got hybrid environments. We've got requests for flexible schedules, um, you know, from schedules and also work environments, sort of what we're working in. Where do we look for guidance in this? Because we are hearing in different parts of the country or pockets of the country that people are obviously going back to work, but it doesn't seem like they're going back to work in the same way they did, you know, sort of January, 2020, like they are now. Um, how, how do you think about that? I mean, not to put you, you know, say you're a forecaster in this or maybe more of an analyst, where are we going and how do we understand if we've actually made it to where we think we need to be going? 
Well, so this is going to be a fairly unsettling response to, to probably anyone listening <laughs> right now. Anyone who thinks they have figured this out is naive and they're wrong. The future, we don't know what the future of work is. Listen, two years ago, uh, almost you know, March 13th, 2020, I call it Friday the 13th, was the day that essentially the pandemic brought everything to a screeching halt. And if you had asked us, uh, we have a great research team, you know, what matters to employees? How will the world change? What will the world of work be like when we come on the come out of this pandemic? First of all, we all thought it was 14 or 21 days. Like none of us thought we'd be talking about the pandemic over two years later. Am I right, Rod? Right? Oh my goodness, yes. <laughs> yeah, but from the highest levels of government, it was like, let's shut down, everyone go home for 14, 21 days, and then we will reemerge. And everything will sort of be back to where it was. Well, it didn't work. Everything shifted and it has continued to shift. We know through our research that as you survey employees in April or May of 2020, what they would tell you mattered to them does not matter to them now. They were talking about remote work. Well, now people aren't talking about remote work. They're talking about flexibility because a lot of people want to come back to work. They miss funny interacting with human beings. So they actually like that. So yeah, they I, miss the water cooler, don't they? Right. They miss it, right? Uh, we know that back then, if you said, I remember predicting, Mr. Predictor, you know what, what's going to be different after the pandemic? Well, people will not be in close quarters anymore. They will not shake hands. They will not hug. Well, we're just all wrong. I was in the airport last night and guess what? People have reverted right back to where they are. So this, this thing that we're seeing, we don't know really a lot about what human beings, uh, what the future of work will be for human beings. What we know is there are a couple of things. We know there'll be more flexibility. We know and we believed that people would, for example, come out of this and be more sympathetic to their neighbors. Well, guess what? Yes, that was true when people were dying every day and it was in the front of you on the news and the ticker tape was coming across the screen telling you five people have died in this part of the country, 100 people here, people are un you know, machines, ventilators, et cetera. And now, amazingly, all of the civility, all of the sympathy, all of the we are one has reversed course. And people are now focused on very much the Burger King culture, as I refer to it, have it my way. We're hearing people and employees be very obsessed with what's in it for me. I'm 27 years old, so I want my student loans paid off. I don't care about the 57-year-old who's concerned about their retirement. So, kill the pension plan, kill the 401k match and pay off my student loans. Like people have really, really reverted. So everything we thought we knew a year ago in short and for sure two years ago has been turned on its head. So I'm not so convinced that any of us know. Just think about what we're talking about now. Do people want to return to work? Well, some people do. And I got to share with you just very personally, we rolled out in our shop a commitment to a hybrid workforce. So people, Mondays and Fridays, people will work remotely, <clears throat> Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday in the office. Can I tell you, much to my surprise, I thought this would be overwhelmingly like totally committed to. Well, employees started writing us saying, listen, I'll give you just an example. Someone wrote us and said, my wife and I live in a one bedroom apartment. She works remotely. I'm working remotely. I cannot work in here with her all day. Not because I don't like my wife, but there's just not enough physical space for us to do it. So if she's on a call and I'm on a call, we're talking over each other, bad idea. I want to come back into the workplace. How dare you take that away from me? Like this is what we're hearing. So it's really hard to figure out 
what employees want, and we're trying to make sense of it, and it's changing daily. Let's let's pivot, Johnny, to a topic that I think is a uh, sort of on the, you know, it's on the minds of so many around uh, the main streets of America, which is this this concept of the Great Resignation. We yes. see the example in education being the big quit, and and so we're starting to understand that there are real implications to a workforce that becomes incredibly depleted. Take me inside your thought process and the way you think about HR departments, because I would think, I'll take sort of the ignorant view, I would think that there is a potential for paralysis by analysis, because in essence, to your point, even internally, like, how do we structure this so that we meet the needs of our workforce here at Sherm? How do we think about supporting our members and the people that we're collaborating with in 165 countries when they're dealing with all of these individual, very specific sets of needs that we don't want to be callous to, we want to be understanding, but there are implications, I think, on the other side of the coin that do impact the growth and the survivability of a given company that does employ. So how do we understand that from the HR department? Because it seems terribly, I don't know, stressful was the word uh, that came to mind in trying to figure out, maybe it's not the future of work, but how do we provide these supports so that people aren't basically a part of this great resignation? So we are doing two things. We're listening. We're listening. And I mean, seriously listening. And then we're using what we get during these listening sessions. And I'm going to elaborate on that a bit to predict and to deliver a, an experience for people that is positive, that will make them think twice about leaving. So let me start with why did I say think twice about it? The reality is we know that over the last year, year and a half, people experienced collectively something that we refer to as COVID clarity. Literally, we have seen people spend this time when everything stopped. You weren't traveling. You couldn't even go get a cup of coffee. The restaurants were closed, coffee shop, like you were stuck at home. And so you weren't on airplanes, you weren't meeting, you weren't partying, you weren't doing those things at happy hours after Friday, you were at home. And so people spent this time re-evaluating. I wrote a book called Reset, just rethinking everything about their relationship with work. And so we've come up on the other side of this, and there has literally been uh, a new social contract that exists between employers and employees. I think at their very DNA, employees now think very differently and have a very different working relationship with the concept of work, right? So as a result of that, we as HR people, everything that we've known for the last 40, 50, 60 years went out the window. We now have to listen very, very intently. And my co-author in the book, Reset, talks about really trying to understand what people are saying and what they mean. And sometimes those are two different things, no surprise, right? People will say <laughs> they want this and employees the damnedest thing. They'll say they want this, but they mean something else. Were we so, talking about marriage, Johnny? Or, or right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, right? But that's my point about listening. So it's not just listening, it is really listening to understand with a lot of nuance. That's what HR teams across the globe right now are really trying to understand. What are you really saying? What will you what will really motivate you? What will keep you here with us and more importantly, for how long? Because all of the data is telling us that, right? That I'm not going to be with you 10 years. In fact, I'm not likely to be with you for five years. So this great resignation may become the norm. Maybe this is just the way it's going to be. People will be with you for two or three year stints and they will move on. And that's okay. 
If we think about the, uh, I will say the average, I don't mean that in a pejorative manner uh, way, but if we think about the average HR professional, are there requisite skill sets now because of all of the things that that you have just covered uh, very eloquently that require an, an update, almost a, if we think about it from like a soft, like this is what how we served in our role in HR prior to the pandemic. And my goodness, we've had all of these tectonic shifts. And so now we have an additional layer of skill sets that we need to have as HR professionals, and how does that impact professional development and learning and opportunities down the road? Yeah, a couple of things that come to mind. One is data, a very different relationship with data, big data, uh, employee insights information. We have, you know, all HR people took employee surveys and conducted them, and but those were backwards looking. They weren't really forward looking, and they had very little predictive uh, value to us, right? We know what employees said. And so, so it was just not good. So increasingly the HR professional of the future has to get very, very comfortable with gathering data, big data, and then using it to predict all sorts of trends and behaviors and, and gather insights for their employers so that they supply their employers, their employers with a steady supply of, of good workers, right? So, so that's number one, and it has really shifted. The other skill that I, I know that we've done is, and it's less a skill, it's more of a, a way of operating, becoming more agile and flexible. Like we in HR, and, and I listen, I grew up in HR. I was a lawyer first, but then grew up in HR. And we're very much focused on, uh, you know, stability, predictability. We wanted rules. We wanted policies. And now people just aren't willing to follow those rules. They don't want to work that way. I was talking with, with someone the other day about, you know, it used to be pretty clear, like you can't date people at work. And now the generation is like, what are you talking about? Of course I'm doing that. Of course I am. And you know it, and I'm not going to hide anymore. <laughs> so you figure out how to operate with a human being in the way that human beings actually operate, work, and live. Don't tell me what's easier for you. So this, this idea that we have got to become more agile used to be just a tech word, right? We really do as HR professionals, we're having to dig very deep within ourselves to say, how are you more agile and responsive to the new way that people want to work? Johnny, does that include bedside manner? I think it fairly or unfairly, I think HR in, um, in the movies, right, from the Hollywood perspective has been seen as this sort of cold, distant professional in the life of an employee in the story that's being told. Now, you and I know that that's not the case, and that's sort of a, a very broad way to describe a profession. Um, but given what you're talking about and the need to be more agile, to be, need to be more forward thinking and understand these insights, it does say to me that I would imagine one element is that interpersonal skill set that someone has to be able to listen better and then apply the data that they're taking in from that human and do so in a very humanizing way. I love it. There's a line that I use sometimes. It's putting the human back in human resources, right? And what's interesting is for, for a while, we didn't call it human resources. <laughs> we called it personnel, right? And so there is a recognition that we absolutely are going to have to be willing to, it really gets to this, this concept of empathy, like really trying to understand the employee's experience, their perspective, their, their experience, for lack of a better word, with work through their lens, not mine, not the, not uh, you know, litigation avoidance, not 
reputation management, but really how are people experiencing work? And that requires very much, it's a paradigm shift of sorts and a mindset shift within the HR professionals world. I do want to make this point though. It's really important. Most HR practitioners were doing this anyway. This idea to your point that, oh my gosh, this is what HR was. Well, most HR people were pretty darn good at this if they were if they kept their jobs and were doing well. But this has now become the new normal. It's not you everyone in HR must do exactly what you're describing. Let's talk about. I know that um, Sherm came out with a 2022 work workplace mental health report. Yes, I, I know I'm, you're going to touch probably on some on some data points and what has been revealed or what was what was discovered. But I guess what I'm curious about right at the outset, Johnny, is take me inside the conversation when you and leadership, your fellow leaders, had a discussion around. Gosh, we need to get we need to gather this kind of information, like sort of that that design thinking. You know, so when you're sitting down and you're ideating around, we're getting all of these data points coming in. What do we need to do? How do we need to ask the right questions? Take me into that. I think that's an interesting conversation. Yeah, so I actually remember the moment. This is fascinating. So I'm sitting in my office, an employee asked to come see me. Very talented, former military officer, da-da-da-da-da. I mean, just, just really loyal and, 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 and great employee. And he comes in, he sits down, he closes the door, and he breaks down in tears. And he begins telling me about what he is experiencing, essentially a mental crisis he is entering. And I'm sitting there thinking, first of all, I'm an HR person, I'm a lawyer, like all sorts of things. So what, this is not, I don't want to deal with this, right? This is not, like I want to get him very quickly out of my office because I'm uncomfortable with this right now, right? <laughs> and just to be transparent, right? I'm very sympathetic and all of that good stuff. And the sympathy part of me said, let me get him to people who know how to solve for this, our EAP. Well, what we learned, and I learned from that very moment was, you know, we don't, treat with parity physical health crises and mental health crises. We just don't, right? Someone comes in and they say they have a physical health problem. We know exactly what to do. We send them to the right people and all of their colleagues rally around them. But when someone is in mental health crisis, not only do we not know how to deal with it, we prefer not to because of the stigma associated with it. And we just don't know. It's, it's the classic case of, I don't know how to deal with this and therefore I'm not going to. So we sat down as an executive team, literally within Sherman said, not only within our employee population, but more broadly, the 115 million people's, people whose lives our members impact every day. We said, this is a problem. We are not addressing uh, mental health with the same level of rigor and intentionality as we do physical health. Even just look at the way we run our, our EAP programs. EAP, you get three or four visits. And guess what? If you're not well by then, good luck. <laughs> You've got to pay for it on your own. <laughs> like, sorry. Con compare and contrast, and we thought about this, but if you had a serious health condition, cancer, We'd let you be treated until you got well, period. It is what it is. And you'd meet your cap and that'll be it. And then we pay for it all. Like we just had a very different way. So we internally, you want to talk about what we did? We sat down and said, this is really important, guys. This is no longer benefits aren't just about physical health. They're also about 
mental health. We have to look at well-being broadly. And we immediately got to work on figuring out what we could do internally for our own employees and then how we could use the platform that is SHRM and the pulpit to really preach the importance of all employers being more aware and more intentional about mental health and wellness. So now, once you did that, tell me about the response that you got from members um, and those corporations that are partners with SHRM and then how that might have influenced even sort of the final result of this report. The, it was amazing. Everyone, it was like the, the secret that no one talked about. They were like, oh my gosh, you know what? You're right. And what we heard first and foremost was, Sherm, what we need you to do is to help destigmatize this conversation. Because this is just not a conversation that we're willing to have, have been told to have, et cetera. Like we stay away from this. And so if you can use your platform to make this, have this conversation, great. Our employees will feel so much better about human resources and the employer broadly if they know that they and that we are having these conversations and we want to do something about it. So that was the first thing, an outpouring of support from everywhere. And there was money. I mean, major nonprofit uh, organizations were calling us up, foundations saying, if you will do the research around this, and we have a great research team led by Dr. Alonzo, they said, if you can do the research and tell us what's really happening with our employees when it comes to mental health and how we can, what we should do about it, we will support you. So we've had every, from Michael Phelps, just the other day, I was talking with him and the CEO of Aetna uh, Mental Health, and we were all talking about what can we do to address this very big issue. So it's been great. I mean, we really struck on an opportunity. We're going to take a major left turn if you're willing to go down. I'll go with <laughs> the you. rabbit hole. You'll go with me. Okay. I want to talk. I think it's it's always, I think it's incredibly valuable for the audience of all generations uh, and backgrounds to understand how people get and, and where they've how they've gotten to where they are. Take me back to to the the early days of, of Johnny Taylor. Take me back to your experience as someone that was a part of a team in a classroom. Like what was your experience, your sense of self? When did you understand and experience agency? in a way that you think impacted your career path? Huh, that's really something because I don't know, you know, this is a very interesting point and maybe this is a horrible answer, but I had such great parents and, and I grew up in such an environment where agency was just an expect. I didn't have a moment. It was just, I, I always knew that I needed to do something that made the world a better place. I knew that I had to figure out what my strength was so that I could help contribute to this better place. No point in focusing always on my negative, my, my weaknesses. Like, what can you do well to impact the world in a positive place? Went on to college at the University of Miami and throughout. It was it was exploration process, much of what we talked about in higher ed. Yes, I was learning the three R's, reading, writing, arithmetic, but I was also trying to figure out where what was my highest and best use? What was my major contribution to the world? And not just for me, but for the world. Uh, and and I think it would, I'd have to say in college, I finally, it became very, very clear to me that I wanted to, I had a gift for gab and I could write and I could do those things and I could think logically and all, and I could argue like hell with the best of them. So, <laughs> so they helped, uh, you know, sort of nurture that part of me. And then I went on to law school and ended up as a lawyer in a major corporation that, that doesn't really exist anymore called Blockbuster. Funny story. But 
I've got a tape I need to return. (laughs) (laughs) And we have a $10,000 bill to charge you for the the late fees. You remember those? We called them convenience fees. But no, no, I will tell you, and this is, it was at this point where I was at Blockbuster. I just took you quickly through and I was trying to come up with that moment. I was sitting at Blockbuster and we had a number. I was always the lawyer. Put the fire out, solve the problem, protect the company. And I realized uh, that I just had this epiphany that, God, how many of these situations um, were avoidable? How How much better of a company we would be, how much better of a country we would be if indeed we worked really hard to avoid these conflicts, these law, these disputes, these et cetera. And I said, let me put my skill of of lawyering and defending the company to work for good. And that is figure out how to make workplaces better. So I went into HR. That's literally was the, so i had always had these dreams of becoming general counsel. And that wasn't my first executive role. My first executive role was VP of HR at Blockbuster because I really began to appreciate I can actually make the world a better place by giving people better workplaces and work experiences. Did you find it was a challenge? I mean, you, you talked about you'd already, you were sort of, it was in your DNA to understand your sense of your own constitution and agency. Yes. Some might argue that, and I would say that some might wonder or be curious if that was them, that it would be challenging to understand and have not, not really empathy, but more recognition of those in in seeking out agency because they don't have that background, right? Just yes. because you have it, it may be difficult to recognize it when it's staring you in the face. Talk about some of the transition from sort of the legal space in that regard to an environment where it's an entirely different radar, I would imagine, that you're playing with. Yeah, so you this, this issue, I sort of potentially conflated self-awareness mm-hmm. and, and this idea of agency. So I was very clear about who I was and what I wanted to do and how I wanted to get there. Now, obviously you massage that, you grow and you, you know, so it's modified a little bit, just waking up every day. But at the end of the day, I I was very clear. I will say part of, and your hint, you're hitting right on, part of the struggle was because I had such clarity, I lacked empathy. I lacked even a basic understanding of why others weren't so clear about life. Like I finished undergrad in two and a half years. Why? Because I was clear when I got there, what I wanted to major in, how long I was going to be there. I was so clear with my life and I struggled a lot. You, you, gosh, I hadn't thought about this. I should have a couch right now and be lying down on it and you're coaching. <laughs> me this. I, I, I really did not understand and frankly didn't have a lot of patience for people who did not have a lot of clarity in their life. And, and I had to work through that because much of, I was taught to be, you know, a defender and defenders find your strength and they play to that and they beat the other side, they win. And I had to really within myself say, listen, it winning isn't, you know, this idea that if I win and you lose, I won. No, we both kind of lost, right. In, in our own way, when you look at it more globally. So that's, that's what I had to do. I think the biggest thing is to become more self-aware and then have a level of appreciation that we all come to this world with different experiences and varying degrees of self-awareness and or agency and a commitment to deliver on that, to be yourself. 
You know, I find Johnny in, in the interviews that I've done with people who have reached a certain level of success or attained a certain level of perceived success that, and those that have clarity to your point, I, I really enjoy that use of the word uh, in the space of human development, that oftentimes there's a struggle individually to celebrate success and or to understand where success is on the field of play yes. because of the clarity. Can you talk to that? Gosh, Yes, it's it's a painful part of my existence. I never ever think I've succeeded, you know. And I've had that question. And I know I talk to other leaders, CEOs, presidents, even on my executive team. And in some ways, the world thinks you think you've got it all figured out, and you you just because it's a moving sort of goalpost for you. You know, it's like you never ever ever feel like you've achieved whatever success is. And it's frustrating, I gotta tell you, because it's hard to ever say I'm satisfied, I'm happy. Like I actually have asked myself this on occasion, are you happy? You make really good money, you have a great kid, you got a great life, you're in great health, da da da. And, and I don't know, it's, I don't know. It is a very tough thing for people who have perceived success because you just like, maybe because you don't know failure. <laughs> Maybe so in any real meaningful way, life has kind of worked out for us. And so it's hard to enjoy it. And all you're doing is looking for the next big thing. I remember growing up and I had a, a one of my mentors say to me, I said, you know, I can't wait until I make six figures. He said, that won't be enough. And then I said, I can't wait until then I make seven figures. And he said, and that won't be enough. Like people who are wired like us leaders are never, ever satisfied. And that's a blessing and a curse. Do you find then that the muscle you have to build up is is one of being able to sit in and within ambiguity? Uh, yes, yes. And then perhaps the most important muscle of mine that is atrophied is to just um, accept that things are where they are today. So I'm so busy thinking about the future, going back to your initial question, like, what's the future of work? How about just taking in and enjoying the present? That's really hard for leaders because we are charged with looking around the corner, you know, chasing to where the puck is. I mean, think about everything that leaders are taught to do is to not enjoy the now. And that's a really frustrating time. I know for me, it's one of the most frustrating things because, okay, so then you wake up and you're 75 and you've amassed wealth and fame and, and prestige and whatever. And then what? You die. <laughs> there you have it. So if we could then connect your story, which I think is a fantastic backdrop to just HR in general and some of the challenges that are being faced in HR departments across the world, do you feel like there will, we almost have to get to a point where we can't sort of box up, put in containers, all of our processes, processes and procedures, because our employees are very transient. Our, you know, our companies are changing and growing. Um, at a moment's notice. And so is that part of it that we need to have a skill set as HR professionals um, to support and also to enjoy our own job where we can sit in the ambiguity? Because I don't think that that's exactly how people thought of HR. To your point earlier that it was personnel. Um, is that going to be something that we want to make sure that we're aware of as we're developing new sort of opportunities, um, new guide rails, you know, guardrails, I should say, um, for the profession? Yeah, I think that's that's something that we have got to get comfortable uh, operating in uncertainty. And if you think about it, HR in its origins was all about risk management. 
in some ways, that's really what we were tasked with doing for management is to do no harm. And, Sounds very and, lawyer-esque to me. Well, well, right. Yeah. I mean, hello. <laughs> protection, and, protection. Protect, protect, protect. Uh, and so what, what, we, what we've come to realize is some of the most effective HR leaders I've seen have gotten really, really comfortable with the unknown. Like they, they just say, listen, we're in chaos. I don't know. And it goes back to my initial comment when people say, Johnny, what's the future of work like? I have to get very comfortable saying, I don't know. I really don't. I, I can. And the more you get comfortable there, first of all, it builds on your curiosity because you don't know, but you're interested in knowing. So naturally, the great HR leaders don't know, but are curious about it. And so they seek out the answers and they look for data and trends and ways so that we can get ahead of it a little bit back to getting ahead all the time. But the real, real opportunity is to not try to fit everything into a nice little box with a bow on it. Because life isn't that. Work isn't that. I can't tell you the number of times I've come in with a calendar for the day and I'm going to do this and I'm going to spend this time and then life throws a wrench in and it totally throws my day off because I had it planned. Like I really had this figured out and now business happened, people happened, and I've now got to get comfortable and remain comfortable in this, this flux. So flexibility, name of the game, being agile, name of the game. And that's really hard for people who believed they were brought in to, to sort of make it all work and be predictable. Johnny, is there a silver lining to all of these, um, what might be perceived as obstacles that we've been traversing in this conversation when it comes to the, to HR as a profession? I mean, as a profession, it has the opportunity to, I'm going to, I'm going to invoke your book title here, reset, recast, redefine the profession, the people within the profession and the value that HR departments provide the leading companies around the world. Yeah, you know, we are business people. Let me start with this, because I oftentimes hear people say, oh, I don't, for example, I'm not a fan of the term HR business partner, because I don't think you're a partner to the business. I think you're a part of the business, right? And this notion that the finance person is a business person and the marketing person is a, is a business person and HR is not is absurd. I think we are all business people. And what I do know about business people is they are totally comfortable working in sort of the unknown. There are things over which they have no control. And they just have to constantly adjust and to adjust rather and, and respond to what comes their way. This is great for HR. This is a skill that if we master is going to make us even more effective in the boardrooms, in the C-suites, et cetera, because we will be able to adjust businesses just that fluid. And again, if you're in a knowledge-based economy, as we now know we are and will be for a very long time, I don't know what the next... Uh, economy will be, but it's a knowledge-based economy now, right now, and we have got to be as fluid as that 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 economy is. Johnny, what would be the moral of the story uh, when we think about HR? I mean, what's the moral of the story and the contribution that HR um, is providing when we think about everything, mental health, um, sort of stability of workplace and experience? What is the moral of the story? We have a tagline at Sherman that says, better workplaces lead to a better world. The moral of the story is if you, and, and I say this to our HR practitioners, I just left Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and I was talking with them. And I said, this, this work is, is literally at the, it's God's work. That unless you're a, a trust 
kid or what do they call those kings or trust account kid or whatever they call them. Trust fund. <laughs> trust fund kid, right? Everyone <laughs> is going to have to go to work. Most of us will have to work. And so we have the ability and the roles that we have to ensure that people have full lives, um, satisfying lives as a result of what we do with them while they're working. Like anything that you do that can improve uh, someone's experience at work ultimately benefits their lives. And it just benefits their lives. It impacts their children, their communities, like society writ large. So as I step back and think about the real moral of the story is, um, and I said this, we are, and we saw this during the pandemic, we are corporate first responders. You know, in so many ways you think about when you think first responders, you're thinking, you know, firefighters and police officers and, and not nurses and doctors. But we are that. We, we are all of that. And if you get that right, my God, we could make really the world a better place. I know it sounds a little hokey, but that's the big headline for me is you got to get into this work because you genuinely want to make people's lives better. It's, you know, it's never been, I think, more important than it is now. And we're going to learn so much about what we value as individuals are the professions that we engage in and the companies that we choose to work with and the relationship uh, that we have uh, with our employers. So, so well said. I, I love that corporate first responders. I mean, it's so incredibly true. Um, Johnny, I know that you've got your upcoming annual conference. The theme is cause the effect. Let, let's close with this. Tell me about the the reason behind, I love that as a tagline from a theme perspective, but I know that there that was written and developed with intentionality. As I've gotten to know you over the last hour, my hunch is it's been written with intentionality. Talk about cause the effect. Yeah. So first of all, all credit to our chief marketing officer, Janine Andrews Feldman, because <laughs> she is the, she and her team are phenomenal, but <laughs> she was capturing, to be honest, the essence of what I, you know, too often our profession has we, we, we focused on stuff being done to us, right? And I we would talk a lot about, I said, listen, there's power in being able to cause the effect. Like we are a profession that can literally transform people's lives and our organization's lives, if you will. And so let's talk less about what is happening to HR and let's talk about what HR can do to cause the effect that we want. We want people to have better lives and we want our businesses to thrive. So let's figure out what our role is going to be in that. So it's very action oriented. It's very courageous and bravery oriented. It's, it's, it's in so many ways, it's what should, should entice people, which I think is near and dear to your heart as, as an HR practitioner, as it is mine. I want the best and brightest people to want to be in HR. This can't be the place you go because you couldn't land anywhere else. Like this should be the sexiest part of every company is helping companies realize and maximize human potential. There's your quote, Johnny. Johnny Taylor said HR is sexy. That's what we're <laughs> going to stick with. <laughs> Love it. Hey, that's your reset. Uh, well, Johnny Taylor, what a, what a fantastic privilege and, and honor it's been to spend some time with you. Um, you are, you know, you're at the helm working with so many incredible people to help reauthor or to, to author what the next is in uh, relationship management tied to our professional lives, which are so personal now. Um, check out Johnny Taylor. His book is Reset. You can go to SHRM, which is H S H 
rm.org, excuse me. And also uh, June 12th to the 15th is the annual conference in New Orleans, I believe. And the theme is cause the effect. And Johnny Taylor, I think you're doing just that. It's been a great pleasure. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. This concludes another chapter of On Balance. Connect with me via LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm Dr. Rod Berger.